Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is David Mickle and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It's my pleasure to introduce our panel, Outwit, Outplay, Outanalyze, Survivor Analytics. Our panelists today are Sophie Clark, Chief of Staff to the Chief Strategy Officer at Anthem and winner of Survivor South Pacific. Rick Devins, TV news personality and former contestant on Survivor Edge of Extinction. Uh, Wendell Holland, founder of Beave Unlimited and winner of Survivor Ghost Island. And Christian Hubicki, robotics professor at Florida A&M, Florida State College of Engineering uh, and former contestant on Survivor David versus Goliath. Our panel will be moderated by Rob Sesternino, host and creator of Rob Has a Podcast uh, and former contestant on Survivor the Amazon. The panel will run for 35 minutes and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please ask questions on Twitter using the hashtag outwit, outplay, outanalyze. Questions will then be selected by the moderator. With that, I'll turn it over to Rob. All right. Well, very excited to be here uh, as part of the conference to get to talk about some Survivor with some Survivor luminaries on the subject of Survivor analytics. And so I think this is a very interesting topic because I think that we like to try to look at something like Survivor. We've got 40 seasons of the show. And what are the takeaways that we can uh, look at as we start to study what has happened all over these different seasons? So is there one particular place that we would start if we wanted to try to study survivor analytics? What's the most important thing that we should be looking at in the field of survivor analytics? We're all looking at uh, the robotics professor, I think on this one, Christian. (laughs) I've been been volunteered or voluntold that I'm up first. Thank you very much, Rick. It's great to be here. Yeah, so like, there are so many great players out there. I'm happy to be amongst so many of them here. And, And, one thing that I think great players do is they're really great at managing connections in the game. And so that's one thing that's kind of hard that, that the analyze I feel that about Survivor is that, it, you know, I might be on a tribe with completely different people. And how am I going to interact uh, with, with, with those other players? I mean, and one example, like I'll give for my season that how connections are pretty, uh, pretty um, important. Um, number one, like if you take my season, for instance, I'm there with 20 people. I have no idea who they are. Okay. No clue. But they throw me on a tribe with a bunch of them, right? And so I don't know any of them, but now I know about 10 of them, okay? So then we start to know a little bit about each other. We vote each other out, but then we swap, okay? So we're all mixed up, right? Now we have some new sets of connections, right, on our new tribes. We have new rounds of elimination, and then we, what do we do? We merge, right? And so we all have different connections now, okay? And so you can see them all drawn here, and that looks like a really complicated, tangled web. And that's really complicated. But I imagine we have people in the audience who see this and they're like, that's a mathematical graph. I know what to do with that. I can put together a matrix of connections of all those people where a one is I was on a tribe with that person a zero what they weren't. And this is something that you mathematicians would know how to deal with in graph theory. It's called an adjacency matrix, right? So I think this is one thing that survivor analytics would be really cool at handling. They can do, do computations like this 
and figure out which key values indicate players who are well mixed within the group or on the outs of the group and predict the game that way. So that's how I feel about connections. Okay. Uh, first off, that was incredible. Uh, I don't think anybody here was prepared for that. Uh, but uh, amazing job. So does that tell you who the winner of a season is? The person who has the most connections uh, will uh, almost invariably win the season? Well, it's it, that's what the statisticians would be, be able to answer better than me. But like, I, I think it's no coincidence that one of the people that were uh, that were connected to a lot of people, but at the same time isolated together, was the Jabini tribe on my season, which were the final three of my season. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. And we'll see how that bears out over the data of forty plus seasons. But I think that that's something that survivor analysis would benefit from. That I would see probably less of in baseball analysis, for instance. That that's my take. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, looking back at the season uh, retroactively, uh, that let me ask uh, Wendell: Do you feel like that there are any particular uh, things that you would look to, like if you were trying to go back and look at the like historical data for Survivor players, like if you were looking at like uh, the back of the trading card at uh, all of these uh, Survivor legends, like what would your eyes point to to try to see, you know, who might be the best of the best? Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I guess sometimes when I think about Survivor winners or when I think about like the game of Survivor on my particular season, um, we had people that were very strong at certain things, people with like super strengths, if you will. Like like we had a guy, Chris Noble, who had he was like a, he played baseball. He was a model. He had all this stuff. But rapper when a rapper. But uh, when, when you look at these people that are, are so excellent at things, I think that those are the people that don't necessarily win. It's more so how I like to say it is like, like the best average person. So when you have someone that is um, super smart, we had a guy named James Lim, we had Laurel, um, these people that are brilliant, those are threats, that's threatening. So in my case, I wasn't the smartest, I wasn't the most athletic or anything like that. I kind of hung in the middle, kind of like the top of the middle. And that allowed me, that propelled me, I guess, past the merge. And then I was able to really step things up. So I think um, one thing that I look at is like the people that are great at certain things, if those greatnesses show, then that makes them big threats. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's really interesting in terms of uh, anybody who is an outlier. It uh, looks like an advantage like it would be if this was a sport. But in Survivor, like anything that makes you stand out so much from the crowd that it's noticeable uh, is ultimately uh, a disadvantage. Uh, Sophie, yeah. if you were going to be going back onto a season, like what, what types of things would you look at if you were going to try to study the back catalog of Survivor data to try to see how you could improve yourself as a player? I mean, I think there are some things that you look back and you look at all the winners and you can't quite change about yourself, right? It's undeniable that men are now doing better on Survivor than women. Uh, I imagine, I think white people probably have done better than um, people of other races over time. There are some things that just, uh, it, if you look back as a Survivor player, you might think, oh, great, I'm a I'm a middle-aged white man, I'm looking good, right? There are, there are things like that. And then I agree with Wendell, I think there are some things that are exclusionary. So like being really wealthy or famous, you think about Mike White or Jimmy Johnson, like these are people who I can't imagine a situation where they're gonna win. I think you come in there as a billionaire and it's gonna be like an uphill battle. 
Um, so I think there are some of these things that like exclude you as a player. Uh, but I agree with Wendell. There's something, I wouldn't necessarily say there's an archetype because if you looked at the most season, which was winners at war, you had a really diverse cast of people. Um, you know, you had people who won because they were the flirtiest people. You had people who won because they were the funniest, because they were the most charming to be around, because they were athletic. There's not necessarily like one archetype of this is what the best survivor player looks like. But I kind of think there is something to what Wendell was saying about not necessarily being average, but maybe it's about like recognizing your own strengths and the people who are able to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna win because I'm flirty rather than I'm going to go in and try to play like Boston Rob, or I'm going to win because I'm really good at making close friendships. And I think it's those people who are able to like tap into whatever it is that makes them like really great at being average. Um, but I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a single archetype. I mean, you look at Cochrane, right? If you wanted to say that the survivor archetype was a moderately athletic, you know, 30 year old um, man with social skills, I wouldn't put Cochrane in, in that bucket. I think that's what's fun about Survivor is like there is no perfect archetype. Yeah. Well, while you're looking for that perfect archetype to eliminate, sometimes the people who are not that are able to take advantage of that. For Sophie and Wendell, when you two who recently went back in the last recorded season of Survivor to date, were either of you tempted to sort of like try to have these takeaways being that you kind of had like the knowledge base of who your competition was going to be? And was there anything that you tried to... Uh, at least hypothesize going in? It, what I wanted to do um, was I, I recognize these like huge survivor names, the Rushmore, if you will. And I didn't want to go far in the game with the Rushmore, the Boston Robs, the Parves, the Sandras, these people that with any momentum, they could just steamroll the competition for whatever reason. So um and I ultimately that kind of hurt my game because I myself and other people voted out poverty and then, you know, and then Yule and then there were repercussions, Sophie. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, what I what I wanted to do coming into the game is recognize the people that I was coming in with and try to with the winners that were kind of um, around my win, the newer winners, work with those people to kind of. I guess, get rid of those Rushmore types. Yeah. I wish that I'd done more of this kind of analytical thinking. The first time I played Survivor, I remember people were like, what your what's your strategy? What's your strategy? And I was like, Survivor's an art. There is no strategy. You go, you see the people, you see how you feel. And the second time I didn't feel quite as much like that, but I actually think there's a huge role for analytics. I did do a little bit of before I went on the second time. Like I watched everybody's season I made like a dossier that was really more of an art project than anything else, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, Wendell's really good at challenges, like very obvious things. Um, but I actually didn't employ it as much as it probably would have been useful during the game. I think in the game, you can get really wrapped up in what's happening right in front of your eyes in the same way that I imagine, like in a baseball game, the coach gets wrapped up and is like, I know he's thrown 10 balls, but like, I believe in this guy is going to throw a strike. And if the coach is able to step back and say, Every, you know, 99% of the time this pitcher throws 10 balls, he's throwing another ball next, they would take him out of the game. And I think that's what's really hard when you're playing the game is being able to take a step back and have that perspective and say, I know this is true about this person. I know that 95% chance if he tells me he wants to go to the end with me, he doesn't want to go to the end with me. 
but you get so clouded by what your hopes are and what you see in front of you that you're like unable to pull on the facts and the truths you know about the people you're playing with. Um, and I, I imagine in a very similar way to all athletes, you know, who are having to struggle with this, when do, when do I rely on the data and when do I rely on like my gut feel during the game? Rick, I know you are a big time sports fan and I'm sure are uh, very aware of all the ways that there are analytics in sports. But when we try to put that framework onto Survivor, that there are inherent challenges because Survivor, unlike where like Major League Baseball, we could catalog every single pitch that's been thrown for, you know, uh, so many years and every single football play, we can tell everything that happened where Survivor is not that. We do not have like a, you know, accurate representation of everything that has. Uh, I mean, Survivor is not the actual game footage. It's basically like the championship video for one particular player that's edited in a way to sort of have a protagonist and an antagonist and may not necessarily be an accurate representation of what what's going on. So is there any way to be able to mine the Survivor data for, you know, accurate takeaways? Yeah, I, th I think there is. And you're absolutely right. It's so hard to compare because, you know, the Oakland A's are never going to get to the championship game and then find out there's actually three teams in the championship this year, <laughs> you know, or, or, oh, no, surprise, you have one more game to win that we didn't tell you about, but you used all your pitchers, which analytics told you to do, you know, so, so there are things that are always changing in Survivor. And it's also really easy just like in baseball and basketball to get lost in the analytics. You know, a big part of managing a baseball team and general managing a team these days is knowing what information to give your players and when, so they don't get lost in the numbers. And I think that's what you don't necessarily have in survivor right now. Like you don't have that one thing that is, he gets on base. Like we don't care how he does it. They all look different, but you get on base. But I think if you look big picture, like why did analytics start? Because a team with no money had to compete with a team with lots mm -hmm. of money. So they just need to think outside the box. And I think that's when you have players like, you know, the three-point line was there forever. The hidden immunity idol was there forever. And it changed the game, but people only used it to a certain extent. Then Russell Hans comes in and goes, you can win the whole game with this. Daryl Morey comes into basketball and says, all you need is the three-pointer. It's worth more than the two-pointer. So I think you need to find the new thing. Maybe it's fire tokens and go, how can I use this that even the game didn't think I could do? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up on-base percentage because I feel like to me, like uh, to go back to like the, the money ball idea of like, uh, look, either you make an out or you get on base. And as long as you don't make an out, the game keeps keeps going. And to me, that the on-base percentage is not getting voted out. So for a while, when Sandra was the you know uh, person who had played twice and won twice, to me, I felt like that statistically, she has gone to the, all these tribal councils and she never gets voted out. Christian, should we be looking at like tribal councils attended and not being voted out as the ultimate statistic for survivor success? I was literally the same thing, the same thing when you're talking about on base percentage, you know, whether you walk, whether you hit, you get on base here, whether you, you, you played an idol uh, or, or, or you met or no one paid attention to you or someone else played an idol on you, you got through the tribal council. Now, where I think the dynamics get tricky is that, it, you know, you, uh, Wendell was talking about threats and things like that. And, uh, and it's not like when someone gets on base the first time, 
The second time, this catcher can go and tackle them and make sure they never, or play an idle nullifier on them to make sure they can't get on base again next time. I mean, the pitcher can't adapt, et cetera. But I think that the, that there's, um, in, in robotics, we would call this a, a non-Markov process where the past history affects your future performance in a very literal way. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of the things that makes Survivor difficult to analyze. I mean, I'm just talking within one game. Sophie's talking about the reputation uh, from season to season or, or, or your past history, right? So that non-Markov, it's thrown around technical terms, that, that history dependence is, is really critical in Survivor. But and now, I don't want to throw a wrench into this, but yes, if we're talking about please. one side of the equation being really hard to figure out, which is like, what are all the factors that make somebody good? Like, should we be looking at on-base percentage or how many votes or whatever? We're all ignoring the fact that the outcome of Survivor is also totally up in the air. Like, baseball is the same rules every time. Who scores the most run? This is like, to Rick Devon's point, what if at the final championship, after it was over, they said, ha, this time we're going to score based on how many feet hit second base. Like, you don't know what the jury's going to value each season. Mm-hmm. And so even deciding what makes somebody a good player, well, a, the definition of a good player changes every season as well. So you're, like, dealing with both sides of the equation. Yeah. Wendell, as a winner, I think it's also important to include, like, in this, uh, you know, equation like i almost feel like it should be sort of like uh like a uh ops where it's an on base plus slugging where we have to also factor in okay how good are you at not getting voted out and then also how good are you if you get to the end because there's plenty of people who don't get voted out but they get to the end and they get zero votes so you have to be a person who is able to keep surviving tribal council after tribal council but also be able to have the winning argument when you get there yeah, you don't want to just be taken to the end. And um, like you want to be able to plead your case and for the people that you're pleading it to, to value what you did to get to the end. And I guess, like Sophie said, you don't know what the jury will value. You're not sure. And that's on a um, that's on a season by season basis. And you don't even know the size of the jury. Sometimes there's going to be a huge jury. Sometimes it's going to be a small jury. Um, if you think back, like, uh, the name Russell Hance was mentioned in that era, people didn't necessarily, um, I guess, value that kind of gameplay at the time. Whereas if he were to maybe play that similar game today, he might, he might win the game because that was kind of like a new style gameplay, finding idols um, without clues and doing literally anything to get to the end. And play. Like he played a game. That man is a, a gamesman. But he stepped on a lot of people. And now now a jury might value that. Um, and back then they probably didn't. So yeah. mm-hmm. and I'll put and I'll throw in on top of that. I mean, you're talking, I mean, there's great talk about the players adapting to the game, but also the game adapts to the players. Uh, you know, we talk about R- Russell Hansen, another great example. Rick talks about how he really opened up this avenue for all these idols. Well, I mean, like what happens to all these idols over time? You know, after Russell Hans, you know, if it's ever if it's ever actually moves here. You know, you have your seasons over time with number of idols. This is what happens to idols over time. Boom, 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 boom. Look at that. Okay. The game likes the fact that Russell's running around with all these idols and all these other players and they put more in, right? So it's like a feedback loop. And if you're talking about what like, a, like an optimal player would be in Survivor, they come in for season 41. They're not just looking at the game as it was last, last season or the last five seasons. They're looking at this trend. 
going up. It's like, hmm, maybe I should expect that there's more idols. And look, there's 12 in Island of the Idols. That's like almost as many as like tribal councils there are getting up there, right? And that changes the entire calculus of how you would actually go about and play the game. So, and Christian, I'm sorry, Rob, but you'll recognize Christian. Could you throw that graph back up? Yeah, you got it. Because Rob, the great thing about being a sports fan is anyone out there in the audience that loves baseball, loves uh, basketball, could look at that graph and go, that's exactly what's happened with three-pointers. That's exactly what's happened with strikeout percentage. And that's exactly what happens with home run rates. Yeah. Because when the numbers start to prove it, teams buy in. So you, to, I think to use analytics to win Survivor, you have to be the first one to figure something out. You have to be the first one to think outside the box because everyone's going to catch up with you. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting when we look at that chart with the graphs, uh, another thing that has happened in recent Survivor history is that uh, for some reason over the last, uh, you know, it's been six seasons since we've had a woman who wins the game. And Sophie, do you feel like, is there a correlation between the way that we're seeing uh, the idols uh, and the speed of the game sped up? And then also that we have now, it's been uh, over, well, it's been four years now because we haven't had a season. But, you know, since a woman has won. And for anybody who's new to Survivor, there are the same number of men and women on every single season of Survivor. I have part. my theories about this. Yes. Um, and it's even worse probably than the statistics you say. I think in the last uh, 10 years, it's been like two women. Like it's very, it's, it's when I went on Survivor in season 23, it was basically half. And mm -hmm. I think since then it's been less than, it's like 20% female. Mm -hmm. My personal theory, but I, I, I'm curious to know what the people here who've all played with women on Survivor feel, um, is that Survivor you know, in the same way that sports has become less about who's biggest home run person into something much more complex. Survivor used to be Colby's an athletic, awesome guy, but he brought the nice woman and she beat him. It was like a very simple social experiment game. And now everybody who goes on Survivor is a gamer. Like it used to be, you know, that was a farmer and that was a beautician and now it's that's the farmer strategist and that's the beautician strategist like everybody has a strategy these days and the game is demanding that to win you have to be a strategist nobody wants to give the win anymore to natalie white for being a nice girl nobody wants to give the win to tina for being you know nicer than cold it's just not happening anymore and i think as that shift has happened um i think that women for a couple of reasons haven't benefited from it and i think one might be um, that they maybe have a natural inclination to be less cutthroat. And so they maybe are less well-suited or the women that are casted are less well-suited to do that executed. But I also think there's something about society, I think having a hard time palating that kind of game coming from a woman. I think there's a lot of women who are cutthroat. I think about Sarah Lucina on our season most recently. There's a lot of badass women who are super cutthroat, but they tend to, I think, not get... Um, rewarded for it in the same way that men are getting rewarded for it rather it's seen as uh, that like you were kind of a bitch um I don't know if I can say that so that's my kind of theory is that it's harder for a woman to pull off because at the end you also have to make people want to vote for you mm -hmm. people all want to vote for the most strategic person and yet it's harder I think for them to do it when it was a woman and you know I'll say one last thing about this because Sarah Lissy and I think on our most recent season really had this problem she was so cutthroat. She screwed over everybody. She screwed me over. But she also really struggled with it emotionally um, in a way that I think some men on 
survivor don't. And I think it was hard to, for people around her to see that and be like, you're being a jerk, but I also like, what's up with the crying? Like, own it. Like you're, you're playing a great game, own it. And I think that's kind of the struggle that women have had on Survivor recently that have contributed. Again, it's also a very small end. You know, maybe flip with the coin, it's a woman next time. But I'm curious what other people think. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dodge, speak from my experience, uh, you know, I had a close, I had a close alliance uh, with Gabby on my season. And uh, it was really problematic because um, I, I was in a situation where I was making the same moves as her at basically every tribal council. But who would get the credit? Me. And I didn't want the credit. You know, I had I, I I didn't want more attention on me. No, thank you. Goodbye. But but it still kept focusing on me, and I was and and Gabby couldn't get credit for it if she tried, and it kept creating this unstable situation where she couldn't possibly go with me to the end because all the moves we did together, I was getting credit for, it, even if I didn't want it. You know, it, it's just how it worked. So so I. I you know, I indirectly experienced the consequences of that. And that, so that, that was my experience with that, just in my small way. You know, um, I think this is another interesting part of this is that I wonder, are survivor juries maybe over influenced by certain things that are measurable in terms of how many idols were played? How many challenges do you win? Uh, so you brought up Tina and Colby, where I feel like that the things that Tina brought to the game were probably immeasurable. You were not really able to sort of have takeaways where now we have the idea of the survivor resume, which has really taken hold, where people do want to look at the back of the baseball card. Like, all right, how many idols did you play? How many, uh, you know, how many times did you flip? How many times uh, did you win an immunity challenge? Uh, you know, how many advantages did you play? And so we do have a lot of times. And at Wendell, in in your season, that uh, I think you ended up getting the last five votes of uh, from your uh, ultimately the last six of in your jury uh, that we saw uh, in uh, David versus Goliath as well. People who got closer to the end of the game uh, had more appreciation for. Mike's game as opposed to Nick who played more advantages and won more challenges. Do you think uh, that the juries maybe are overly influenced by the idea of stats? Uh, I could start, I guess. Yeah. You want, no, go ahead, Rick. I, I would say that, you know, that that's almost the imperfect science of comparing survivor to sports is we're trying to, or initially we were trying to compare it to winning a championship when it's more like winning an MVP uh, Mm -hmm. when it comes down, because, you know, a GM doesn't necessarily want the MVP. If they're big into analytics, they might not want the best player in the league to have to pay that much. They want a bunch of undervalued guys that do things that you can't point to. But if you have to win MVP at the end, what do you look at? You look at the points they scored, the assists they did, the really easy to point to back of the base card, baseball card things. So if there's someone who steals the spotlight as often as possible, like I did in my season, you know, throwing stuff out there. It makes it really hard for someone who doesn't have idle plays to say, I made this strategic decision, especially it's almost like you're trying to convince the other people you're playing basketball with. Like I was more responsible for that basket than you, like you gave me the ball, but I called the play and they're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Whereas at least someone can say, well, I've scored the most points. And it's like, how do you argue with that? I, I agree with that. Yeah. I was going to say, um, as far as the, the shiny things um, sitting at the end of the game, I won a few individual immunities. I found an idol 
I made some fake idols on my season. And Dom, we were kind of like equal. He he had a couple idols. He won some immunities. And that's, I mean, at the end, we tied. So it's like, all right, these two people who both collected a lot of stuff, um, we both had like good stat sheets. We tied at the end. So um, juries definitely, they look at those things. That's your resume. And um, someone with the intangibles, in my season, it was Laurel. This woman is the reason why we got to the end together. Um, she could have went against either one of us, then none of us would have been at the end together. But you, it was hard to quantify what she did because she didn't have all these uh, shiny things at the end. But she truly is the reason why the three of us got to the end. So, Christian, I know that when you were a juror in David versus Goliath, I know that you put some, you know, analytic thought into your jury decision, correct? Yeah, I, I did. I did. And because I, one thing when I watched the show, I always respected when people gave credit to the person that they thought had control, whether or not they backstabbed you or not. I think that's just the equitable way to play the game. You go in expecting that, you know, you're going to have to play a game of poker and you might lose the hand and you reward the person that does. So I, I put a lot of thought and charts into how I would uh, who I'd vote for based upon who I thought had control in the game. And for me, it was actually a close vote. Um, and but I will say I like to think that way. Uh, but I also, also have to acknowledge, you know, like we're all human beings on the jury, those of us who have been jurors. And uh, I guess, uh, and, and, and so that's, um, the, it's easy to let your outside world seep in. I mean, how much time did you spend with this person? How much are you excusing your personal like or affinity for this person you spent with by saying, and they made this move as opposed to this move, right? And that's something that could principally speaking be analyzed. You know, that, that's something you could actually do. And I'm not saying I have, but I might have. But the, um, the so let's take like Rick's season, right? You, you know, at the end you had Chris and Gavin very much talked about vote, right? You had like store 13 jurors, my gosh, you know, and you had these two very different stories as to who uh, should win this thing. And it's complicated. Everyone's jury decision is complicated. But if you just look at the time they spent together, did that do any way like correlate with jury votes? So you can actually do this. You could actually say who spent more time with Gavin versus more time with Chris, right? And I'm not saying it's the only reason, but just in terms of correlation, and you can look at it, both of these players, put all the jurors on that, and you can see that, oh, you know, on average here, on average here, you know, the people who spent time with Gavin, you know, they voted for him. Now that could be because they saw his game, right? Maybe they saw it up close. But I think that there may this would be a potential metric here that you can maybe actually analyze that this person is more of a jury threat than you might realize because they just flat out spent time with the jury. Yeah. Um Rick, as somebody who was on that jury, uh, does that correlate for you? I, I mean, I think it does. But again, there's so many things that go into that that make the mm -hmm. numbers deceiving. You know, Gavin, the people he spent the most time with, he had to stab in the back most of them at the end. Whereas Chris, the people he spent the most time with on my season, he never had to vote against. He never had to make a move against. Um, but, I, but I'd be interested to see. I bet that would carry over into a lot of seasons. But again, you know, the measurements aren't the same as a, as a baseball sure. field or an NBA. Mm -hmm. to, to be clear, this is not a crystal ball. I just want to make that absolutely clear, Rick. It's just, it's just like this is such a fascinating season to look at. So I looked at that one. But you're totally right. I mean, you, you know, you know uh, yeah, that's all I have to say. It's great. These um, are the exact kind of stats that I think as a player, if you knew this in your head, 
generally people are more likely to vote for somebody who if they spent time with. Generally, somebody's going to vote with somebody who's a similar demographic, whatever it might be. It helps you like filter out all the hopes and dreams and thoughts you have at the gate, like on the beach of the island to make a decision. I think yeah. that's how like the analytics of Survivor works. And it's a little different too, because Survivor analytics, like you have to, every decision matters because it's a zero sum game. Like unlike baseball where you can, you know, you can have an out and that's fine. And then you're still in the game. I feel like Survivor is all about filtering these things in that Christian is talking about and saying, is this something I'm going to act on or not? Because yeah. if you act on it and you're wrong, you're getting voted out and you're done. Okay. Well, that's a great way to get into talking about uh, timing and sort of like uh, the analytics at looking at when to potentially vote a different way. And so are there things that we as a Survivor player can sort of uh, look at to find optimal times to maybe vote against people? Because ultimately, Survivor is the numbers game, and you are always trying to figure out uh, like to, ways to have a new majority on any given vote. Uh, are there any things that you would look to in terms of trying to make a decision on when to flip? Sophie was so good at preventing people from flipping on their first season. Well, Sophie knew when not to flip. Yeah. I have my own personal theory from being traumatized by be being beaten by Tony most recently, um, which is I think Tony, like Tony is the greatest survivor player of all time, in my opinion. Uh, and I think timing is what Tony's really good at, but he has a very blunt object that he uses for it, which is just be first to everything. And I think Tony, you know, everybody else probably waits one step too late and Tony is flipping one time before you expect him to. Um, and I think in a game of survivor where everybody is strategizing all the time, one of the best things to do is to be able to set the pace of the game. And if you're the one acting first, you're by definition setting the pace of the game. So I would, I almost argue against my own history and saying, I think more and more as survivor evolves, you know, being, first and acting quickly is probably a very valuable thing. But to piggyback off that, and I agree with you, Sophie, um, if you act too quick, then it's like, all right, who is this person that we're dealing with? So it's, I think, in my opinion, it's waiting till the waiting till you get far enough to where mm -hmm. you can then start making those quicker moves yeah. and that not sink your ship. Well, when you say too quick, you mean voting out Yule, our best ally, and, and screwing the rest of our game over window? Sophie, we will talk later. <laughs> well, to, to go back to the Tony of it all in terms of uh, moving first, as two people who played on the tribe with Tony, uh, did he, uh, in fact, come in and try not to do things first? Where that uh, did, did he, like, wait long enough to start uh, not doing things first and then pick the right moment to start uh, being the first person to flip against the group. Yeah, Tony, I was with Tony from the beginning um, on DeKal Beach and we were building the shelter though for a, a majority of the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, when is this guy Tony going to be Tony? Like, what what is this disguise he's wearing? And I, and like he's making ladders and doing all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, at what point is Tony doing the Tony stuff that we know? And later on in the season, I learned he never slept or something. So he was always out searching for things. But um, yeah, he came in and, and he timed it right. And like Sophie said, he was the first to those, you know, those hard shots, but at the right point. Okay. 
I want to start to incorporate some of the questions from uh, the audience uh, watching us here today. And so uh, let me bring in this question uh, that asks, uh, assuming that you entered your seasons with uh, thought out strategies beforehand, how hard is it to stick to those strategies once you got to the island? Uh, does it immediately go out the window? Rick, your big smile. Uh, I think that going in with any type of specific strategy is a mistake. I think you need to be flexible. Um, and I, my, mine went out the window pretty quickly uh, when I hit the island just because the human element of survivor. Like I had a plan that I'm going to use this type of person to get to the end. And then I got there and I'm with my tribe and realized like those types of people were not the ones that I really wanted to work with. Um, so I think maybe, you know, you need to have a loose outline. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll jump in on that too. I mean, like I, I basically went in and I was really worried about just being targeted as the small one or something like that. And, you know, it's like, okay, I just got to make sure that I'm, you know, people like have me around enough that they don't vote me out immediately. It gives me some time to stick around. Then immediately I get thrown into this basically hero duel against the Goliaths. It's like the first thing that happens. Like, oh, great. And it's like, it's like, good luck blending in now. And yeah, that's so, and, and then really that, that set like my entire trajectory for the rest of the game in a lot of ways. It just, I could, I was in the spotlight. I can never really get out of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, you, know, to, you know, that's something that maybe if things played out differently, I could have had a completely different trajectory. Who knows? I have a question of uh, something that has uh, been making the rounds on the internet this morning. There's some rumors that the next season of Survivor might be shorter uh, because of some of the issues having to do with filming uh, during the pandemic, uh, potentially maybe even 10 days shorter. Do we have any thoughts on what type of player this might favor to have uh, potentially a 29-day season of Survivor versus a 39-day season? Uh, are you, like, will a more aggressive player have a, a better shot here, or is it more likely to uh, that the uh, more passive player might have a better chance to get to the end? Shorter fuse? What do you think, Wendell? I think I think it'll help a more aggressive player. If I'm not mistaken, um, a lot of the the vote outs happen more frequently towards the end of the game. Yeah. So we're we're I guess we're moving that closer, or we're, we're making things on a more frequent basis. So if you get in there and get moving faster, I think I think that might help. Okay. Also, just consider like presumably that would mean I mean they're not reducing the number of players in the game. They're tightening the timeline, I would assume. Mm -hmm. and that would mean same number of tribal councils, shorter period of time. We've all played the seasons where like you have like the first day of a three-day cycle is a reward challenge. Second day is often a day off, you know, from challenges. Third day is is, is tribal. Uh all the plans now have to come together in two days instead of in two days instead of three. Mm -hmm. And so I would agree with Wendell, more aggressive players will be able to make yeah. things happen. Look, if you cut all the reward challenges out of a survivor season, nobody's gonna miss them. It's Except fine. Except the castaways. Yeah. Except the castaways. All right, give him some more food. Uh, give you know that it's a, that's an easy problem to fix. Okay. Um, how about this uh, for uh, Sophie and Wendell who've played uh, Survivor multiple times? How do you change or improve your strategy when returning uh, after the first experience? Like, uh, what are the things that you do to try to tweak your game? 
So I think it all depends on what your first game was. And Survivor is fundamentally like a game of how people perceive you. And that's what they vote on at the end is their perception of you. And like the whole game is how are you perceived? And so I think what matters for the second time is having a really clear picture of what other people think of you going in and making sure you have a almost like a PR ready strategy to combat that mm-hmm. or to promote it if it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine Wendell and I probably similar. I think we actually both went into Survivor Winners at War with pretty good PR, like a pretty good rep, probably like loyal, whatever. Other people, you know, you have Tony who goes into Winners at War and needs to convince everybody he's not Tony and is instead he's a new construction worker building ladders. Um, so I think given it's a game about perception, it's about like managing your, you know, managing your own reputation and then also like evolving your game just enough to get ahead of people so they can't predict what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. I agree with that too. Um, yeah, I, I came in as like one, like a, like a good guy. And I just wanted to tweak my game a little bit and uh, just play a little harder. And then I came out of season 40 as a bad guy, as a villain, as the guy that everyone hates. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, that could be for numerous reasons, but um, yeah, you want to, you want to go in and understand who you were. And sometimes you got to do a, a campaign to, to prove otherwise. And sometimes you just got to tweak your game a little bit. Yep. Uh, and I don't have any useful information on how to improve your game for the second time around, uh, unfortunately. Um, I'm getting... Uh, were you taking notes? I was taking notes. Yeah, Uh-oh. I got notes now. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm seeing that the, the chat is blowing up about people want the auction uh, to come back. Uh, Kristen, you have some bad news about the auction you want to share? I actually do have bad news about the auction, at least in terms of now, now uh, with some caveat of bad news. So I was in a challenge where I got to chat, chat for, with Jeff a little bit. Um, that was uh, probably harder on Jeff than it was on me, to be honest. But, uh, but the, it, I asked him, would he bring back the auction? And he wasn't too thrilled about it. He said that he was like, ah, people don't like watching survivors eat hot dogs. And that's not the point of the auction, at least from a show standpoint. It's to get people to make political decisions in front of everybody else. And mm-hmm. from a viewing standpoint, I love whenever you get to see how people think. You know, it's like, and, and every time you're in the auction, uh, you know, you have to make decisions. Who's going to bet? Who's going to hold on to their money? They just need to get rid of the advantage in the auction or at least get, or neutralize it in a way where where people actually bid on chocolate again instead of just waiting to draw a rock for an idol. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, question for Rick. Uh, Rick, you were public enemy number one from the time uh, that there were seven-ish people left. Uh, when someone takes on that role, whether it's by choice or by not, uh, are there any factors that they can adjust in order to no longer have the vote directed on them? You know, after playing my season, I was convinced that there was nothing I could do, uh, that, they, that they just didn't want to go to the end of me, with me, and I couldn't do anything to change their thoughts. I just had to put it off as much as I can. And then I'm watching season 40, and I'm even on the Rob Sesternino RHAP podcast saying, there's no way Tony can make it to the end. He's easily the biggest threat. And, and maybe he was surrounded by people with reputations, but he did it. He found a way to get there that I did not find. So he convinced me that there's always a way. Uh, I just didn't find it. I would love to ask Rick, Rick question about that. Like that experience, like of being public enemy number one, was it freeing in a way to know that this is my avenue I need to go? It's get idols and immunities and I don't have to worry about convincing these folks. Was that freeing? There is no question. And I, 
have the benefit of also being voted off early in the game. Uh, I returned. Uh, and, and the first time I was voted off, I didn't have that benefit of knowing I was the target. And I could have done more to keep myself in the game, but I didn't want to rock the boat. I was scared. You know, it could go either way. I didn't want to put the target on me. Whereas you're absolutely right. Later in the game, I knew the target was on me. And I did everything I could to, you know, in a nice way, drive the people around me crazy because I had nothing to lose. Uh, that was just an advantage I could gain. So you're 100% correct. I know we are running very short on time. Is there anything else that anybody on the panel wants to share on this subject? Uh, any, any other visual aids or charts to present to the group? Uh, I, I do, but they would take too long to go through. Mm -hmm. So I'll save that for, you know, maybe next year. When Sophie, they, they was that a, was that a hand raise? No, that was just, you know, uh, an exclamation mark in real life. I'm thinking about Christian's charts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Wendell and I worked very hard on a PowerPoint and I blew it. I deleted it. I apologize. I was buying Top Shot packs and <laughs> we didn't want to show okay. up Christian. So it's cool. All right. Yeah. Well, then. One other quick one for me um, that we've had this, you know, uh, pandemic and lockdown for the last year. Survivor is going back into production uh, very soon, um, potentially a shorter season. How do we think players will play differently or or not at all after being impacted by uh, the last year of the pandemic and being isolated from uh, so many social situations? Well, I mean. The year off, I wonder how that's going to play into things. I mean, I don't know what people's you know, experience like when they're played, you know, when they're playing. Uh, a lot of times they were like everyone was reacting to the last season they saw, which was like two seasons prior or so. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like you could see that everyone was like almost overcorrecting, overreacting to that. And normally that wouldn't be the most recent season because of the filming schedule. So I'd be really. Yeah. Yeah. Wendell, what do you have to say? I was just going to think, I, I was thinking about when we go out there and how we're kind of on um, Ponderosa and we're not al allowed to interact with anyone, but we see everybody. And what that did for me as a new player is when I actually was able to get on the island and speak to people, I wanted to like explode and talk to everybody. I think that's the effect that that kind of isolation has. So maybe this kind of pandemic isolation will mean that people will just, maybe we'll see a lot of like, people just going in there and really playing. And I hope that's what we, what we see. Yeah. I, I do want a lot of, oh. go ahead, Sophie. I was say, I imagine a lot of these people were casted over a year ago. Like these people, to your point, Wendell, like they've probably been bottling up like their survivor emotions and strategies for a long time. Like they've had a long time to figure out how to evolve the game. Could so be I'm a, expecting yeah. big things. Messy first couple of days. Yeah. It, it could be messy. I, I just also wonder, like, could everybody be so like sort of like just like uh, like the relationships feel more real? You have mm -hmm. not been around people in so long. It's like, oh, my God, this is my family now that, that I, I wonder if we could see a less cutthroat season uh, potentially. But we'll have to wait until the fall uh, to see. All right. Uh, thanks so much to uh, everybody behind the scenes at the uh, MIT uh, Sloan Analytics Conference for allowing us to nerd out and talk about some Survivor uh, with you here today. Uh, any Anybody else have anything? Thank you, Thank Rob. You Thank Daryl Morey. Thank, Thank everyone. This has been so much fun. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye.
This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.